Today's reading is taken from Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jezubites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Thank you, Ollie, for uh, reading that passage to us. One of the curious literary features of the book of Joshua is the author's fascination with stone pillars. He punctuates his narrative with moments when Joshua builds a stone pillar as a monument to uh, victory won. We're going to encounter a moment like that in chapter 4 of the book. After the miraculous crossing of the Jordan, um, the Lord tells Joshua to set up a stone monument, a pillar to commemorate a moment Uh, That made it possible for people to have an inheritance and a future. And the New Testament uses this big story uh, right from being released as slaves in Egypt 
through to the inheritance in the promised land. It uses that story as a metaphor for the Christian life. And each of the stone pillars in Joshua teaches us about a different aspect of our victory over sin and death. So we should expect the story that we're going to think about tonight in chapters 3 and 4 to be of real relevance to the lives of Christian believers. All of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, at least up to verse 18, tell the basic story of the crossing of the Jordan. And we need to appreciate the drama of the story. I mean, sometimes the Jordan River was just a trickle, but during April and May, the Jordan River floods. The land falls steeply from the mountains in Lebanon, up in the north, uh, down to the Dead Sea in the south. And the melting snow off Mount Hermon causes the river to become a torrent at that time of year. And at the point where the Israelites were, the Jordan floodplain would have been about a mile wide, and the riverbed would have been a treacherous mix of tangled bush and rocks and jungle growth. So the Jordan River represents an apparently impossible barrier. It stood between the people and their inheritance. And the first blindingly obvious point here is that Joshua overcomes the barrier. He's able to do what Moses could not do. He was able to lead the people into the promised land. Um, Now, here's the thing. Joshua is the same name as Jesus in Hebrew. So it's no wonder that the New Testament often points out that salvation offered by Jesus Christ can do what Moses and his law could not do. Only Joshua can bring us from death into life. Now, the first thing we notice about this story, if you've read through chapters 3 and 4, is that it's told in a rather strange way. At first sight, it seems to jump around a bit and repeat itself. But when you've read it over a few times, you see that the story is deliberately told three times. Uh, from three different perspectives. The first perspective, the view from the east bank of the Jordan, is told from the perspective of those who had not yet crossed over into the new life. Okay, that's the first one. The second view is from the west bank of the Jordan, and that's the perspective of those who had crossed over and were now safe in the promised land. And then the third and final view is from the middle of the Jordan. Now, this isn't the view of the people. It's the view of the men who carried the Ark of the Covenant. So in this little study, we're going to follow those three different perspectives. Okay, so first we'll think about it from the viewpoint of those who have not yet crossed over. Then we'll think about it uh, from the perspective of those who had completed the crossing and were safely on the other side. And then we'll think about the story from the perspective of the priests who stood in the middle of the riverbed while the people crossed over. So as Ollie read to us, God's plan for the crossing was centred on the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant was normally placed in the Holy of the Holies, in the tabernacle. It was a large wooden box covered in gold, uh, and its top cover had two cherubim covering the place that symbolised the very presence of God. In some ways the Ark of the Covenant represented the throne of God. It was carried by you slotted poles through gold rings on the side of the box, and then four priests from the tribe of Levi would carry it when the Israelites were moving to a new camp. And God's plan was to send the priests carrying the ark on ahead of the people. They were to follow at a distance. And once the priests' feet touched the water of the Jordan, God promised that the flow would not be stopped, or would be stopped upstream, so that the Israelites could walk across the riverbed into the promised land. And that is indeed what happened. The priests, carrying this symbol of God's presence, step into the water. Miles upstream, in a little town called Adam, the water piled up in a great heap. The priests moved into the middle of the riverbed and stood there for perhaps most of the day until all the people had hurried across the riverbed. 
Now, the story first time round is told from the viewpoint of an Israelite who had not yet crossed the river. And you can imagine the nervousness within the camp. Where was Moses when you needed him? At the Red Sea, there had been a pillar of fire and cloud. There had been a dramatic sign that God was in control. At Mount Sinai, there had been fire and thunder and smoke, proof that God was to be feared. But the contrast between those scenes and this one could not be clearer. Now, God clearly exerted huge power to cause the water to pile up upstream, but that was miles and miles away. As far as the people were concerned, the only sign of God's presence was this little golden box carried by the Levites. And it is that image, that single compelling picture that I want to leave with you tonight. It marks itself on our minds, 1,000 yards away at a distance. The people watch this lonely little procession move into the waters of the Jordan. And when the water stops, they watch as the Levites pick their way through the riverbed and then stand in the middle of the Jordan between the people and the waters of judgment. No fire, no smoke, no thundering noise from heaven. After all, the ark had been formed by normal human processes. They knew the people who had made it. It was at their level, as vulnerable as they were. And yet it stands there. God had promised in chapter 1, that he would never leave nor forsake Joshua. And that meant more than encouraging words boomed out from on high. This ark was in the same trouble as the people. And for a day, the priests stood there while the people hurried past to get to the other side. And he'd hardly point out the link to the gospel. God calls us to cross over from death to life. But why should we consider such a thing? What will give us the confidence to leave our life as it is and draw us into a new life of faith? Well, we see God standing between us and trouble. We see God on our level making himself vulnerable. We see that lonely procession as Jesus carries a wooden cross up a hill called Calvary and we see him hang there, standing in between us and trouble. Millions of people down through the centuries have looked at that compelling picture of Christ on the cross and have found there the courage to cross over into the life of faith. The picture of the ark is a lovely picture of how God deals with us in times of trouble. I remember my wife saying to me during her own time of trouble, I don't just have a peace that the Lord is beside me. I have a peace that he is ahead of me. In the last year, the normal routines and habits of daily life have fallen apart. If there was ever an epitaph needed for the year 2020, it would be found in Joshua 3, 4. Like those Israelites, you have not travelled this way before. Well, my fearful brother or sister, remember the Ark of the Covenant. Remember how it shows that God is the first to step into trouble and the last to leave it. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Those words aren't uttered by some aloof intelligence in heaven. They come from the lips of the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. It is the cross that allows us to move into the life of faith where we are led by the Spirit through trials and tests. Now in the first nine verses of chapter 4, the story is told again, but this time it's from the perspective of those who have made it safely across to the West Bank. Once the people were all safely across, Joshua instructed 12 men each representing one of the twelve tribes, to lift a stone from the riverbed, um, just at the point where the priests stood holding the ark. 
and they were then to carry it across to the other side. And Joshua uses them to build his stone pillar. Now, what did those stones represent? Well, if it hadn't been for the Lord, the Israelites would have been overcome by the floodwaters. They'd have been hurled into the riverbed to drown. They would have been helpless. But just as these 12 stones had been picked out of the riverbed and carried to safety, so the Lord had saved them. And as the 12 men carried the stones back to safety, they were carrying the conviction that they had been saved. Now, let me just stop there. Perhaps the greatest enemy to faith is forgetfulness. Maybe I'm talking to someone now overcome with doubt or a sense of failure or hopelessness. Well, allow me to ask you gently, when was the last time you really felt the conviction that you were saved? Now, please don't take that question as a school designed to induce guilt. My aim is quite the reverse. If only we could feel once again the conviction that we have been saved, if the reality of that truth impressed itself on our hearts, then the problems we face in life could be seen in their true light. However horrible they are, remember that the cross allows Paul to call them light and momentary afflictions. So why don't we just pause now and remember that we have been saved. Wonderfully saved by an almighty God who reached down and pulled us out of danger. Perhaps the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. The conviction of having been saved has to be at the core of our experience if we are to live by faith. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Now, you may be asking, how well does that conviction, how how does it actually take root in my heart? What is the New Testament equivalent of Joshua's stone pillar? What is the memorial that will stop God's people from forgetting that God saved them? Well, it is the belief of this church that the Lord Jesus established a memorial for us, a feast to be celebrated each Lord's Day. We call it the, the breaking of bread, and I hope you'll allow me to be direct for a moment. I think COVID-19 will prove to be a disaster for the church in Northern Ireland. It has broken the weekly rhythms of the communities of God's people. And the statistics coming out of America are alarming. It seems that millennials, particularly young professionals with infant children, are simply not returning to the pattern of weekly Sunday attendance. And the weekly communion service is under particular threat because there are genuine health issues associated with the partaking of emblems. So we need wisdom to make sure that a weekly breaking of bread service can remain at the heart of our corporate worship. Now, I'm not scared of losing a man-made tradition here. The point from this passage is that forgetfulness is the enemy of faith. We can only face life's trials when we carry into those situations the conviction that we have been saved. So we thought about the perspective from the East Bank, from the perspective of those who had not yet crossed over. And then we've thought about the view from the West Bank, the perspective of those looking back on their salvation. But in Joshua chapter 4, verse 10, he starts to tell the story again for a third time. And this time the perspective is of the Levites who are holding up the ark. All day they watched women and children hurrying over, older people being helped over rocks, and then they watched the armies march past. I must have seen the anxiety on the people's faces and how they fixed their eyes on the ark to keep courage. I sometimes wonder, you know, when the Lord Jesus was hanging on the cross, 
Did he look down through the centuries and see millions of men and women, young and old, hurrying from death to life? Hebrews talks of the Lord who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And he endured such incalculable suffering so that he could have the joy of seeing you come across and enter into your inheritance. Maybe he saw you cross as a seven-year-old or as a young student. He saw some of you cross in middle age. But as he hung on the cross, as he stood between us and trouble, he could look down through the centuries and see you cross from death to life. And that brought him joy. There's a solemn footnote to this third retelling of the story. At the end, Joshua commands the priests to come up out of the river. And as soon as they do so, the waters come rushing back and the Jordan returns to flood. It must have been like a tsunami. The window of opportunity had closed. If anyone had dithered around, not trusting God enough to cross over, then their opportunity was gone forever. Now, the Ark of the Covenant didn't go down under the crashing waters that flowed back. But 1,300 years later, we read these words in Matthew's Gospel. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. And John saw this dust-stained traveller waiting along with sinful men to be baptised. And he knew the truth. He cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus did go under the waters of baptism, and not just symbolically, but in awful reality. On the cross, God the Son bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And the sufferings of the Lord Jesus during those hours of darkness are often described in the Old Testament using the metaphor of drowning. Psalm 88 verse 7. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Or Jonah 2 verse 3. You have hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. 2 Samuel 22 verse 5. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Now, I may be over-spiritualizing the text here, but I find it interesting that in chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us that the waters piled up at a place called Adam. So when the waters returned, they would have been like a tsunami roaring towards the Ark of the Covenant from Adam. When our Lord hung on the cross, he bore humanity's sin. The Son of God was confronted with all the horrors of this fallen world. He was confronted with every evil wickedness in all of history, from the murder of Abel to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And he said, I take responsibility for that. And the waters of judgment fell upon him like a tsunami. While we were uh, isolated during this pandemic, a young Chinese student uh, who had been part of Crescent Life for six years returned home to China. He was still in his sins, even though many of us had talked with him for years and laughed with him every week. Um, but not long after he returned home, uh, he committed his life to Christ. I want to quote a couple of sentences from an email he sent to a church member. His English isn't great, but it's certainly better than my Chinese. This is what he says. In the talking I might not express clearly, I would like to summary the steps as following. One, I was seeking the centre of life for a long time because the life without a centre is divergent. Two, I read some Christian books. I was attracted. I guessed Jesus Christ was the centre I was seeking. Three, I prayed to Jesus. I felt that the quality of my life suddenly evolved, so believe that this is the proof of Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, when I heard that news, I remembered another student from China 
whose testimony was similar. Some of you will remember her. Her name was Tina. She was a lovely girl who found her way into our hearts. She used to call me Jim Uncle. Anyway, she returned to China in unbelief. But Ronnie and Edna Barron kept in contact with her using all sorts of social media. Tina married her boyfriend in China and uh, settled down. And after a while, her husband was offered a chance to do some postgraduate studies in Chicago. And so they, they left and lived there. And while studying in Chicago, uh, Tina and her husband got saved. Now, the reason I'm telling this story is because I will never forget the moment Edna Barron showed me a photo on her smartphone of Tina being baptised. She was standing in some river in Chicago, having been raised out of the water, and her face was beaming. Now, baptisms are the happiest funeral you will ever attend, because after the burial there is an immediate resurrection. The symbolism of a baptism is that we are united with Christ in his death and then united with him in his resurrection. And so just as we close, I'd like you now to remember your own baptism. Maybe it took place in the tank here at Crescent or in some smaller church. But the moment you came out of the water, you were declaring that you were united with Christ in his resurrection. And so the point is this. The awful moment when Jesus Christ went under the waters of judgment is not the end. Three days later, Christ arose from the dead. He now lives in the power of an endless life. So we do remember a saviour who died, but our saviour is alive forevermore. And because of his great work, we can carry within us the conviction that we have been saved. We have passed from death to life. To give you a practical takeaway point, uh, I want you to remember this. It's a very simple uh, principle. We should live the way we were saved. Our daily lives should be based on the thing that forms the basis of our salvation. And it's a terribly obvious point. It's often missed by believers. Imagine that I really wanted to play the piano in public. Actually, it would horrify me, but imagine that I did. And I therefore apply myself with great vigour to obtain various grades. I eventually uh, achieve grade 8 and some um, diploma. I now consider myself able to play in public. Now, you would be surprised, would you not, if I chose to play the piano in public using only my feet and my head. Well, you say, I say I've got a professional qualification now, so I can do what I want. Well, after advising medication, you might sit me down and say that the way I played now had to be entirely the product of my training. Now, you smile at that ludicrous idea, and yet Christendom is awash with those who are adamant that they are saved by faith, but who do not live by faith. We should live the way we are saved. Now, that general principle can be applied to our passage tonight. I'm going to borrow a phrase from an old hymn. We should live under the shadow of the cross. It's interesting, you know, just how many hymns make that point. Abide with me, hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. Or obviously, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Or what about Jesus, keep me near the cross. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. A more modern one, how can I be free from sin? The last verse of that says, how can I live day by day? Lead me to the cross of Jesus. And Paul makes exactly that point in Romans 8. He says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So these ancient Israelites have taught us a crucial, practical truth. The whole point of crossing the Jordan was to convince them that the living God was among them, that he had the power to drive out their enemies. And they were to take that lesson and build it into their own lives. 
So we should live the way we were saved. Anyway, we're done. Somewhere in all that verbiage, I think I made three points. Remember that lonely procession. The God who travels through trouble with us. Remember, secondly, to return to the cross and carry away with us the conviction that we have been saved. And remember that the window of opportunity might close tonight. And then the final and central truth. Let us live the way we were saved. Live under the shadow of the cross in delight and thanksgiving. Let's pray and then we'll sing our final hymn. Our final hymn is going to be Thank You for the Cross, Lord. And after I have prayed, we shall sing it together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on a dramatic story that has enriched our imaginations and helped us to understand at a deeper level uh, the work of the cross of Christ. I thank you as a Christian body of believers that we have hurried across from death to life. Help us, Lord, never to forget what you have done. We remember that forgetfulness is the enemy of faith. And so help us, Lord, practically to commemorate the Lord's death until he come, as you have asked us to do. And Lord, we thank you for this insight into the price that Christ paid going under the waters of judgment on our behalf. And we rejoice that he rose from the dead uh, and we are united with him in his resurrection. We ask now uh, that you bless us uh, as we sing together. In Jesus' name, amen.